Good morning. It's good to be together this morning. Ideas have consequences. Every one of us in our life, we build our life upon a foundation of some sort. We can all only have one final authority by which we live our lives. Every function, there has to be an ultimate checks and balance at the very end of the day to say this is the authority by which I build my life upon. And that's what we see in baptism. Uh, as we saw at the beginning of this service and in Elizabeth's testimony to say, I am under the authority of the name of Christ, the authority of Christ. He is the final authority of my life. That is a question that every one of us must ask and answer. To whom is the final authority? Who sits upon the throne of my life? As we walk through this text together of Galatians and we come to chapter 4 this morning, verse 21 through 31, The question for the Galatian believers and for us as well is very clear. There is only room for one on the throne of our life. It will either be by a system of might, a system of effort by the works of man, by the schemes of man, by the pleasures of this world, by the purposes of this world, by claimed sincerity or emotionalism or any other kind of system, or it will be under the reign of the one true triune God. Yahweh, there's only room for one on the throne, and we must, every one of us, choose who will live on the throne of my life. What will be the final authority by what, by what and by whom I live my life? In the Scripture, Jesus repeatedly, in walking from community to community, he asks a question to the Jewish leaders and to the people around. Have you not read? Have you not heard? Jesus the eternal God-man in the flesh, took the Scriptures, the Word of God, to be the final authority for life. The Scriptures are qualified to be the final authority of your life and my life. The question becomes for every one of us as we look at this text, who is sitting as the final authority of my life? Is it a way of man? Is it a way of personal might? Or is it truly the Word of God? God has revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And He has made Himself known to us through the Scripture, the God-breathed Word. And every one of us, as though we were in the crowd when Jesus said, have you not read, have you not heard, are accountable to the Word of God. The picture is this, the beautiful truth that we have before us. Do you know Jesus Christ is King? Do you know the beautiful news of salvation, true forgiveness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, who laid his life down as a make-right sacrifice on the cross? To live for him is true life. To live for him is a foundation that will not shake in the pressures and trials that will come in your life. But oh, to build your life on anything else, it will crumble because it is by human might. In our text this morning, Paul exposes in the argument of the Judaizers, that is those ethnic Jews who have come into the church desiring to persuade the Gentile, remember either ethnically Jewish or Gentile, everyone else. He's trying to persuade the Gentile Christians to add the law to what they're doing, to abandon grace alone and through faith alone and Christ alone and take on the law, the ceremonial acts of the law to be made right with God. And his statement to them in this argument that he's giving us this morning It's a direct warning and a direct statement to say, what they are doing is false. Cut it off from your life. Beware. 
of the judgment of God that comes upon those that will live their life by their own might, rather than the beautiful freeing news of salvation that is yours in Christ alone. Do you know him? So as you have your text, we're going to notice three identity markers for all disciples. A disciple is a follower of, a follower of, all that follow Jesus Christ. These are your identity markers, three descriptions that ought to be true for us, and they're what Paul presupposed were true for those sheep that were there in Galatia, in this region, gathering together in the congregations. So let's begin first and foremost, as we notice that disciples ought to be willing to reason from Scripture as their final authority. Disciples ought to be willing to reason from Scripture as their final authority. Verse 21, and we're reading from the English Standard Version. That's the Pewback Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please do take that and follow along with us this morning. Uh, And beginning in verse 21, Paul says, he's speaking to the church, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. So he shifted his focus to those that are one foot out the door with the Judaizers. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written. For it is written. He shifted the focus to those in the church that are being tempted to abandon the beautiful news of the gospel. And he asks them that statement. He makes this statement, for it is written. His assumption, his hope for them, is that those that are truly of Christ, like sheep who pop their head up at the sound of the shepherd's voice, will hear the true authority and the goodness of Scripture, and they'll be challenged by the Word of God that's their final authority, and they'll respond to it. So in his statement, he goes to Scripture. He goes to Scripture. That's his final authority that he builds his argument on. In our text, Scripture is a sure and full foundation, but there are a wealth of hosts, a wealth of campaigns, we might say, that are campaigning to live on the throne of your life. As we approach the political season for the next 50,000 years of our life, it seems nonstop. It's never going to end. There's no break at all, but it's only going to ramp up, you know it, in the months to come. There are individuals who are campaigning. They're spending millions upon millions upon millions of dollars for your singular vote. The world is campaigning and campaigning and campaigning to sit on the throne of your life, to be the final authority, the ultimate judge and discerner of what you decide is worthy of your time, your abilities, and your treasures, your purposes. They're all over the place. I'll give you some references to write down and read them for you. This is a consistent theme through all the scriptures, Old and New Testament alike. But Matthew 6, 19 through 21 And 24, Jesus made this statement. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Earthly ends are constantly aiming to be the final authority for your life. Praise and acceptance before men. In 1 Peter 2, 10 through 11, 1 Peter 2, 10 through 11, we also have, so we have a temptation of things outside of us that are desiring to be on the final authority, the throne of our life. We also have elements within us that also desire to push Christ off the throne and to become the rule of our life. 1 Peter 2, 10 through 11 says it like this. Peter writes, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which do what? Which wage war against your soul. Earthly ends and lustful passions. Satan is called the prince of this world on repeated basis. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's called the God of this age. And James, James 4.4 4 says, as to be in friendship with the world is to be at enmity with God. There is only room for one on the throne of our lives. What Paul is trying to make abundantly clear for the church and for us today, the scriptures do, is to bring us to an awareness and an honest understanding that there is but room for one on the throne of my life and that there is a never-ending presence of a campaign made by the world to kick Christ off the throne. And there is also a war within us of lustful passions that likewise, filled with pride and anxieties, that aim to kick Christ off the throne of your life, whether you're young or not so young. It never ends. The campaigns never end, but the speeches change. The speeches change. There's different allures at different ages and different seasons, different hopes and different goals. But the campaigns will never end for the throne of your life to be the final authority. But only Christ is able. Only Christ is sufficient. And that's what Paul builds his argument upon. The Scripture says, the Scripture says, rightly understood in its context, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, your word is fixed in the heavens. The Scriptures are worthy to be the final authority. We all have multiple authorities But Scripture alone is qualified to be your and my final authority of your life. Aim in our lives. Aim in your life. Aim in your home. To be a person fixed on reading and resting in the goodness of the Scriptures. Of simply applying and understanding the Scriptures to your life. Beware of the person that comes and says, I have a specific word for you from God. Beware that person. But aim in your life to become the person that says, I desire to read and understand the Word of God better. I desire to rest in the Word of God better. That is the call of the follower of Christ. That's the authority over our life. His Word is fixed forever in the heavens. It is qualified. No campaigning needs to be done. But submission to the goodness of the Word of God will be a sure foundation to all who come to Him, regardless of your background, regardless of your sin. Christ is a perfect king, and his word is a perfect rule for your life. First, disciples ought to be willing to reason from Scripture as their final authority. And secondly, as we go to 22 through 28, disciples ought to be wanting, to be willing and to be wanting to grasp the story of Scripture regardless of their tradition. Now, we're about to read about seven verses Seven verses, in these seven verses, Paul is summarizing seven chapters. He's summarizing Genesis 16 through 22 in seven verses. It's a pretty impressive feat. So to understand it, let's go ahead and read the whole book of Genesis and see how it fits into order. No, no, some of you were terrified for a second. You're like, we're never going to go to lunch today. No, but I do encourage you that if you're going to read a couple of verses this week as a, as a helpful context, I do encourage you to read Genesis 16 through 22. What Paul's going to do is he's going to summarize this verse, and he's going to paint for us two clear sides that cannot coexist. 
They're at battle with one another. They're at battle because they have a different final authority. What Paul is going to be encouraging the church in, in Galatia to do, the congregations to do. So even though the Gentile ones, the Gentile believers, wouldn't have grown up with the Hebrew Scriptures, he's writing in such a way that it appears, the verses we're going to read in a few moments, they're familiar with this story. So either they heard it themselves, they read it themselves since they've become believers, or the Judaizers, remember those, that's the individuals that are coming into the churches trying to take away the Christians, take away the beautiful news and add the law to it. So either the, that's happened or the Judaizers have come in and told them this story through their own lens. What Paul's hope is, is they come to understand the Scriptures for what they're truly about. That they'll realize to walk with the Judaizers is not to walk in the authority and the understanding of the Scripture, but rather a right understanding of the Scripture will cause them to reject the Judaizers' traditional view of that text, these seven verses, and how they fit in. Does that make sense? So there's two sides. He's quoting these, these, these he's referencing, he's summarizing these seven chapters with the hope of understanding that disciples will so desire to understand the Scriptures rightly in their full context that they are willing to leave the traditions of the Judaizers, even if it'll be uncomfortable to sit under the true Word of God. So, let's go to our text then and let's take this verse by verse. We're going to begin in verse 22 through 28. Okay, it says that Abraham had two sons. That Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, and here it is. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And here is verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, you are children of promise. I'm sure you understood everything that happened there, clause by clause. You've already got it covered. You're like me, you read that and your eyes start to fog over. You just, what, what just happened? Well, let's break it down. I, I put for you uh, what I kind of summarized in, down as the allegory of two sides. So you can look at each side of the and there. Two sides. There's two women, two sons, two locations that Paul draws into. There's more that I could walk into, but for time's sake, those are how we're breaking it down at its core. Two women, two sons, two locations. Two women, two sons, two locations. What he's doing on this side is he tells this story. He summarizes these seven chapters. He says it in allegory in a way of saying what has happened in the Old Testament story is foreshadowed and is happening today. He applies it for them in the first century. So you got one side here. If you're unfamiliar with the story, God made a promise with Abraham and Sarah. Even though they were so old in age that nobody else could ever even think about having kids at that age. It was a joke. It was a laughable matter so much so that what does Sarah do? When she hears again, what does she do? She laughs. She laughs. She laughs. There's no way. That's ridiculous. And so God tells him, I'm going I'm to bless you and your descendants and your seed is going to be the descendants of the nations, you and Sarah. And she gets pregnant right away, right? No, she doesn't. And Sarah becomes impatient 
And so Sarah says, here, take my servant girl, take Hagar. So Abraham, which I always thought was weird, it's not good marriage advice. So you have Abraham and, and Hagar, they end up having a kid. And it's on this side. So it's not by the promise. It's not from the promise of God, the covenant. It's from their own might. So Abraham and Sarah ultimately scheme, and they have this idea, okay, well, maybe the line then, we need to make this happen, it's going to come true. But Sarah says, there's no way it's going to come from my barren womb, so it's going to be from here, my servant girl. Here's Hagar. And so they lay together, and there becomes a child. And that child is Ishmael. And you notice in the story, we said this last week a little bit, but in the story, he only quotes one of their names. So even though we have Ishmael over here and Isaac over here, he quotes Isaac's name. We have Sarah and Hagar, he quotes Hagar's name instead of Sarah. I think he's doing this intentionally in part because he's kind of quoting what the text does back in Genesis. He's also doing it as a way to cover a lot of ground in a very short amount of verses. We have this one line on this side. So you have Hagar, this promise by man's might. You have the promise over here and you have man's efforts over here. Man's efforts. They take it into their own hands. So then you have Hagar who has a child and that child's name Ishmael. And Ishmael, what he says, ultimately... When Isaac gets older, God eventually does bless Abraham and Sarah with the promised child over here, and his name is Isaac. And in Genesis 21, when Isaac is weaned, around verse 8 through 10, when Isaac is weaned, it says Ishmael, he laughs. He laughs. And it seems to be he's mocking. There's, there's this tension there. He's mocking, and what Sarah says over here is, no way, cast them out, get them out of here. Get, get, we have no business being together. Get them out of here. And so they're cast out. There's two locations. There's Jerusalem, which he says is Jerusalem below, and then there's Jerusalem above over here. And this is going to be the big scandalous part that we're going to look at in just a moment. The scandalous application is this. The Judaizers, remember, they're from Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, their hope and what they were trying to do, and they're trying to pull them and persuade them to come with them to put their hope in Israel in Jerusalem, which is in Israel, the temple, which is in Jerusalem, that's where their hope was. Their hope for salvation, their hope for life was there. What Paul does to his argument is he says, Gentile believers, there's a Jerusalem that's below, that is of the promise not of Sarah, but man's efforts of Hagar. He takes the two Jerusalems and he ties the earthly physical Jerusalem with the temple and he ties it not to the promise of the covenant, but he ties it to the beliefs of the Judaizers. This belief that there is maybe a Messiah that will come that is not Jesus Christ. And he says that is of man's might. There is no hope there. There is no salvation in one that has a high priest that is not Jesus Christ. There is no salvation that doesn't have Jesus Christ alone as the sacrifice. There is no salvation in that temple. There's no salvation in that Jerusalem. So you're leaving to follow the the Judaizers isn't following to the true Jerusalem. The true Jerusalem, you already have it. The true Jerusalem is above where Jesus is. The right hand of the Father, you're already there. Worship Christ Live for Christ, abide in Christ, rest in Christ. That's the true Jerusalem. And so to abandon Christ is to abandon the true Jerusalem. And you go to a counterfeit. Can you imagine how offensive this message would be to the Jews who had rejected Jesus when they heard this argument? He's saying that you all live your life 
for generations on a counterfeit if you don't have Christ. Because it points forward and has its yes in Jesus Christ. They were so inflamed with this. If you're curious to how they respond, read Acts 21 through 24. When the Holy Spirit leads Paul to go ultimately to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to be handed over to the Roman authorities. And he's going to give testimony at different places of who Christ is. It says that the Jews plotted to rip him apart. They were so enraged by what took place, they desired to rip him apart. And in one text, in one situation, they take a a pledge of not eating anything until they fulfill their desire to kill him. Because the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to the Jew, as Paul says in Corinthians. Here's the big application. Here's the big picture before we go on to the third application, the third identity marker. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you are, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your king, you are ultimately in a situation in which you cannot have true fellowship, no matter how much work it's given into, with people that have a different final authority than Christ and his word. The gospel will be a dividing line. Just as the two of the promise could not have fellowship together, Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac couldn't truly have this because their ultimate sources, one was from man's might and one was from God's new life and God's blessed promise. So too it is with our life. We must make the decision as believers in Jesus Christ to say, I will allow you, Christ, I will submit to you, Christ, as the final authority. I will submit to your word as my final authority no matter what. I am unashamed to live for the gospel For all the days of my life, you alone are worthy. That's the cry of the disciple. That's the cry of our church. That's the hope that we have, is that you can be made right with God, a citizen of the new Jerusalem, because of what Christ has done on your behalf. You are forgiven in Christ. You are accepted in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are his. And that's a reason to praise God. So first we notice disciples ought to be willing to reason from Scripture as their final authority. Secondly, disciples ought to be wanting to grasp the story of Scripture regardless of tradition. Remember, that's his argument. That's his assumption is that the believers will desire in hearing this message. They will be so stirred that they're willing to say, even though I know you, my Judaizing friend, who I've spent time with and I've maybe cried with and open my home to. I believe what the Scripture says rather than what you've been spinning it to say. Scripture is our final authority, rightly understood. That becomes our desire. Likewise, we in our lives must make an application before we go into our third one to say, Lord, I want to understand your word better. I just want to know you better. I want to sit under the goodness of your word. I want to build my life on the goodness of of your word. I want to work in such a way that I work in my life and my career in a way that lives under the authority and guidance of your word. If I'm married, I want to be married in a way that aligns to the goodness of your word. If I've been burdened, if I've been sinned against, I want to forgive and do whatever your word says I ought to do. I want to be a student of your word. Give me wisdom. Show me the way. Light my path as the word of God only can do. It leads us thirdly into this understanding. The disciples are recipients of God's promise. Disciples are recipients of God's promise called to do what? Called to proclaim and practice the beautiful news. 
as recipients of God's promise, as citizens of the Jerusalem above, where Christ is. Where Christ is is where we are. That's why we're called to set our minds on the things above, on where Christ is. And when we reign with Christ and when Christ comes for us, we'll set our minds on Christ where he is. In the new heavens and new earth, our mind will be on where Christ is on the new heavens and new earth. That's going to be a great day. But until then, on this earth, we are to set our minds on things above, and we're called to be people who are proclaiming the good news of Christ, proclaiming and practicing the beautiful news. Verse 29 through 31, look what he says. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, that's Isaac, so also it is now. Verse 30, but what does the Scripture say? He says it again, but what does the Scripture say? That's the final authority. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, the application, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. He's saying just what happened historically in the narrative of the story in those verses So too, you take the application today and understand that you need to have a very hard conversation. We can make the mistake of thinking in the first century world that they were just killed nonstop. And we ought to pray for those believers today that are being martyred all over the earth. Because there is a tension that's naturally set in those that have Scripture and the true Word of God as their final authority and those that do not. There will be a tension there. There must be a tension there at the end of the day. But persecution in the first century world, though great, was oftentimes spotty, like a rash. It would sprout up, there'd be massive persecution in Lufkin, and then not persecution here in Nacogdoches, and vice versa a couple years later. It was very spotty, but it was serious. But a lot of what Paul is asking the church to do here in Galatia is awkward. It's awkward. I think we can relate to this. I've never and once feared in my life, getting lunch with somebody or praying with somebody or the coffee shop or sharing the gospel with somebody. I've never once feared physical persecution for that. Never. Has it even entered into my mind as a thought of, I could be jailed for this or I could be persecuted physically for this. But I have had a lot of anxiety about awkward conversations with friends, with family, people I care about. To have hard, awkward conversations can be a frightening, intimidating thing. So think about in our text. We already know that the Gentile congregations have, for the most part, taken in the Judaizers. They've welcomed them into their homes. It said that the Judaizers have made much of them, so they're close to them. They've spoken to their lives. They've shared meals together. Remember, it wasn't emails. Paul didn't send this email to them. This would have taken months to develop So the Judaizers would have lived there in their homes for probably months and months, if not over a year at this point. Those relationships would have become strong. They would have grieved together as they buried loved ones. They would have laughed together. They shared meals together. And what Paul tells them is, listen, you got to make a decision. You've got to have this Joshua-type moment of choose this day whom you will serve. They are not like you in their beliefs and their final authority. And they're aiming to pull you from the gospel. And so you must do what Sarah did to Hagar. You must cast them out. 
You must break fellowship with, from them. Don't allow them to teach the congregations anymore. Cast them out. Talk about an awkward conversation that would be, right? But they had to choose because the longer they wait, the more the teaching spreads. And the more it takes root, the more it spreads like gangrene over the church body. He's going to make that clear in our next text we're going to look at next week. It's not going to be pleasant. I don't think anybody that's ever had surgery would say it was looking forward to it for the act itself, right? Never met somebody and, and gone to pray with them and said, I'm just really looking forward to the surgery. Like, to get better? No, for the surgery itself. It's going to be great. Cannot wait. What? Those uncomfortable, awkward conversations are kind of like the surgeries we have to be wise in. We have to be prayerful and honest and say, you know what, I love them, but at the end of the day, this is, we have a different authority by which we draw. I love you and I care for you. What Paul's doing is he's not saying to kick out the Jewish believers, the opposite. Romans 11 and 14 give a clear distinction of churches that are made up of ethnically Jewish and Gentile believers who love Jesus Christ and live according to his word. But we're talking about the Judaizers that are coming in with a different final authority. He says, you have no likeness. You don't. Your family is that of Christ. So look what he does to the pronouns. Look what he says. He says, so brothers, so brothers, we, we, us, don't be tempted. You got one foot out, but bring that one foot right back and have home here with me. We have true fellowship. Paul calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, so if you're being tempted to this, you already have it. We're already like this. We're already citizens of the Jerusalem above. And he's coming, and it will one day be a Jerusalem below when he makes all things new. But that day is not yet. But we are brothers in Christ, ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. We are made brothers in Jesus Christ because what Christ did on the cross is that great. The promise that Christ fulfilled is that great. He really kept the fullness of the law, and he never sinned. He is the perfect king for your life. He knows exactly what you need in your life, in your marriage, in your life, in your habits, your hobbies. He knows every aspect about you. And he cares for you. And he laid down his life for you on the cross. He defeated death and he rose again and he's the one qualified to be the final authority for your life. That's the Jesus we serve. Don't leave that throne for a counterfeit. If you don't know that king, turn and trust him. Live under the name of Jesus. Be unashamed to proclaim him. May we not fear awkward conversations that may cost us to live obediently to our king. Thank God that he's included us in the promise. Thank God for his grace. The gospel is what we proclaim. The gospel has been done for us. We don't do the gospel. We don't in that way live the gospel. We rather submit to the gospel message that has been done for us. Graham Goldsworthy says it this way. Listen to this. Christians cannot live the gospel. They can only believe it, proclaim it, and seek to live consistently with it. Only Jesus, only Jesus lived and died the gospel. It's a once and for all finished and perfect event done for us 
by another. That's the gospel. It's good news that we proclaim unashamedly to all people of all backgrounds, of all ages, for all that the Lord has given us left on this earth in our time. That is who we are. We are truly, literally the people of grace, called to share the good news of grace with a broken world that tries to make itself right by its own might, but it never will. Because there's only one great physician, and he is Christ. He's declared it is finished. He has declared it is finished. But every one of us must be aware there's a part of us that says, but let me help, Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus says it is finished, but there's a part of us and there's a part of humanity, the fallenness that says, okay, but let me help, Jesus. Let me help you really finish it. No, 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 no. We receive the gospel. We abide in Christ. We proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And the song we sang a few minutes ago, and we're going to sing again shortly. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. That is what the scripture says. What does the scripture say? Next steps. Next steps. I phrased it down into three application questions. As I prepared this sermon for us, I had a point of conviction. So if it bothers me, it gets to bother you because I get to pass it on, right? I broke them down to three areas, pride, busyness, and anxiety. Pride, busyness, and anxiety as I wrestled with this text. The first application, the first next step question is this, due to pride, are there areas that I am resistant to submitting to Scripture as my final authority? And how will I change that this week? Is there an area in your life that you say, There's no way the scripture can be right on that. No way. Yes way. Submit to the word of God. Abide in him. Pride. Where is our pride challenged at? As we want to rule our life, submit to the spirit, submit to the scriptures. Secondly, due to busyness, have I neglected the regular reading of scripture with my home? If you're married, that would be with your your wife, your, your spouse, kids. If you have roommates, it would be with your roommates. If you're alone for the season in your home, it would be in the context of your home and passing it on to a good friend as well. Challenge your friend to read the Word of God with you. Be unashamed. But reprioritize your schedule to make time, to spend time under the Word of God. How can we submit to it if we have not heard it or read to it? Read it. And then thirdly, anxiety. Due to anxiety, is there someone that I've been putting off inviting to come with me to hear the beautiful news, to celebrate the beautiful news, and how will we change that this week? Is there somebody in your life that you know there might be an awkward conversation that you have? Just to say, hey, I love you. I care for you. Do you have a church home? Would you come with me? I don't know if that makes you anxious or not, but it does me still. And people expect it from me. So in your life, how might the Spirit of God take the Word of God to apply it to your life? We give glory to the King. We thank the Lord that no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. Would you stand and worship our great king together?